Good morning, everybody. Uh, all throughout church history, music has always been a big part of our worshiping together. In fact, scripture talks about encouraging one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And of course, right now in this season we're in, we're not able to do that when we're physically together, but we want to do our best this morning. So we're going to sing a song and invite you to sing with us. So wherever you're at, in your homes, whether it's just two of you or a group of you, uh, we invite you to sing out. You'll see the words on the screen. We're going to sing the solid rock together. in our own homes this morning hearing your word taught we look at the world around us and we see that it seems to be crumbling yet we as Christians know that you are our solid rock and that is a rock that won't crumble so Lord we praise you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us we are grateful for what you've given us and Lord may we be faithful as we go into the world and reach out to a lost and dying world who is now more than ever uh, fearful and scared of what is to come. Lord, we pray that these words of this sermon will be 
pleasing to you and will be uh, life-changing to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, everyone. It's good to see you again, although you, I can't see you, but you can see me. So um, here we are connecting again by uh, online means, and um, we're going to do another sermon today. By the way, I was thinking, um, I'm not going to be back in Matthew till we're all together again. I told you that last time. So I'm thinking uh, I need some ideas for sermons. So if you want to text me some ideas, or um, I might use them. I might. I'm not promising anything because if 20 people send me something, I have to pick one, right? So, And I might come up with my own brilliant idea. But um, if you want to do that, that would be great. Also, if you want to send questions and things like that, that would be cool too. We could do a Q&A time on some of the stuff that's already been posted. I think that would be fun and I could answer some questions that way. So um, I just want to let you know as well that um, we are trying to keep track of everybody. You've probably received a phone call from someone in the church, a deacon or an elder, and uh, we're here for you. If you have any needs at all, you've got to let us know. Uh, I've got men that are ready to come out and help with anything you need done or shopping or uh, if you have financial needs you need to let us know about that too that's really important to us so please do that also I want to tell you a little bit about today's message we're gonna um, I've done this before years ago but if you have been around a long time you may have heard something like it but we're gonna run through the Gospel of John and I mean run through it so um, we're just gonna take his two core themes in blast through the whole gospel so if you don't have your running shoes on you might want to go get those before we start and get those put on and get your fingers all flexed up and ready to turn you're only going to be in John's gospel but um, you're gonna do a lot of jumping around okay so if you want to do that you can or just listen and I hope it blesses you it's just a, a great theological look at that we don't get to do that very often since we go verse by verse ordinarily so to have kind of a big picture view is sort of fun and different and um, we're gonna really focus on John's core message today. Okay, thanks, let's do it. Good morning, I've been thinking about what I wanted to share with you this morning from God's Word before we return to Matthew's Gospel, and I decided on a theological run-through of John's Gospel. So. We won't be in another gospel verse by verse for a long time after we finish Matthew. In fact, I'm kind of thinking of doing the book of Acts next, but that really should have followed Luke, but uh, he wrote both of those. But I'm, I'm not sure. And then uh, if you've got some other ideas, you can send them my way. I'm maybe a smaller New Testament book. I'm kind of working all that through. But I want to talk about John today in one fell swoop. So, and I call this John's bookends because we're really going to look at the beginning and the end of John and run through the middle of it and because he has these themes that he wants to present and the way he constructs the gospel is brilliant. So, we're going to be doing that today. So, I call it John's bookends because he has this one great purpose in the gospel and that is to reveal Jesus as God's son who became flesh for our salvation. And there's a lot of views of Jesus out there, right? I mean, if you meet people from other religions or just people on the street, they've all got their opinions about who Jesus is. Um, some believe he was born of a virgin, like Islam, but that he's not in any way divine, that he's just a great prophet. New Age people love to talk about Christ as sort of a spirit that pervades all things and that Jesus has an abundance of that Christ spirit that's in all of us and he just was a little further along than us. Groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is a created being. He's not eternal and he's sort of a little G God. In fact, in their Bible, they have a little G 
in John chapter 1, verse 1 for him, which we'll talk about when we get there. Mormons believe that Jesus is one of God's many, many spirit children, and he has progressed to deity faster than the rest of us. He's just ahead of us, but he's not substantially different from us. And of course, many secular people believe Jesus was a good and wise man and that people have turned him into a religious figure and created this sort of godlike status for him because that's what people do with things that they care about. And uh, well, who's right about all that? I mean, who is Jesus? And was he really just a good man or a, a super being or a, a godlike angel or something like that? Or is he the eternal God? Was he the same God that made the universe and has no beginning and no end? The eternal, infinite God who depends on nothing and is the source of all things. Is he that God? Because that's how John presents him. And that's what we're going to look at today. So the best person to ask is the person that was closest to him. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew him very well. And he's the man who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. And he was, John was especially dear to Jesus. They were just uh, really close friends. So he knew him well. And I want to show you how he constructs this gospel so you can know who Jesus is and be able to talk about it and explain it in an intelligent way, a, a knowledgeable way. So he's going to present the Jesus we are to put our trust in. There's really two themes that he builds into his narrative, and he does it brilliantly. So at the beginning, he makes two clear, unequivocal affirmations about Jesus that leave no doubt about what he intends to prove about him, what he's going to present him as. And he starts with them and he ends with them. So the first one is the nature of Jesus, the Son of God, and he begins with a whole series of statements in the first chapter. In the middle of the gospel, John sort of weaves alternating miraculous signs and then dialogues Jesus has with the, usually the Jewish leaders about who he is. So there's miracle dialogue, miracle dialogue, and there's seven sequences of those. We're not going to get that much into those parts, but um, they all are adding to what he's going to present at the beginning and reaffirm at the end. So the, the two big things he wants us to know about the nature of Jesus is, one, that he is truly God— the God that created everything, the eternal God, and that Jesus as the Son is distinct from the Father. Those are two really important theological ideas. He's not the Father. There's the Father and the Son, and we know the Holy Spirit, but we're going to talk about the Father and the Son today. And that's what John will proclaim to us all through this gospel. So he bookends his gospel with clear affirmations of the full divinity of Jesus. And then he packs the middle of it with all kinds of supporting uh, events, miracles, and, and statements and claims and ideas that go along and, and fill that in. Now, there's another important message he wants to convey, and he bookends the gospel with this, too, on this also. So, and that is the bodily resurrection of Christ. So, chapter 2, he starts to present Christ in a prophetic way, as one who's going to be raised bodily from the dead. And then when you get to the very end of the book in chapter 20, it actually happens, and then he proves by the details of it that Jesus was raised bodily. There are plenty of groups, religions, cults that deny that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. They say he was just a spirit or something. So that's an important thing, too. Both of those are important. So, one, Christ is God, yet he's a distinct person from the Father. Two, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Those are the things John wants to present to us.
So those are the bookends, how he begins and how he ends and then how he fills in the middle. So we're going to start at the very, very beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1. And verses 1 through 18 really form the prologue of the book. It's sort of introductory. And then at verse 19, he starts actually getting into the, the story of it. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word was before all else. And when the beginning happened, he already was. So John, John uses a word in verse 1 that's really unmistakable. He's describing eternal existence. Um, he's taking away the idea that the Son had a beginning. And he frequently uses words, um, in, especially in chapter 1, you notice them right away, when something is in time, that begins in time or starts in time, and he doesn't use that in John 1.1. He just uses the simple um, verb to be, he, Jesus was. He was in the beginning. But in other places, he uses a different word, and it's a Greek word called Egenata, Egenata. Don't have to worry about that. But it means came or became or came into being, that kind of a thing. And it's a time word. It means there wasn't that before and then this happened or something like that. A good example is in verse 3 where it says, all things came into being through him, through Jesus. So they started, they Egenata, they came into being by his creative power. Creation happened in time. Verse 6, it says there came a man sent from God, his name was John, and that's John the Baptist. So he had a beginning, and not just of his life, but it's talking about his ministry had a beginning. There, he was sent by God at a certain point in time, and he showed up on the scene. Verse 14, we'll get to later, but it, a key idea about Jesus, the word became flesh. Same word. So it refers to something starting or beginning in time. So there was, the, um, there was a time... When the Word was not flesh, but there was never a time when the Word was not God. You see that? So the Word was God in the beginning. The Word became flesh at some point in time. So there was a time when the Word was not flesh, and in time the Word became flesh. So the Word in verse 1 is already existing. The Word was. And John doesn't use the word became or came in verse 1. He already existed. There was never a time when the Son was not. So, he was before any created thing. So, back to verse 1 there. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Then it says, the Word was with God. So, with means in the presence of or toward or face-to-face. -face. It sort of has that idea. So, he was in the closest possible relationship with God the Father. But there's still a distinction between them. They're not the same person. There's a relationship. So, they're enjoying each other. So, the Word and God, in that sense, are not identical, not the same person, but they are one. They're both God. So the last phrase in verse 1, it says, and the Word was God. And, and that's John's theme. The Word was God. God stands in the place, in the Greek text, the Greek is structured differently than English. It's actually the first word in the Greek text. It actually says, and God was the Word. So you can't miss it. It's like very boldly put out there. So what John is saying here. Well, as a Jew, it's astounding. It really is. For the Jew, the heart of his faith is that there's only one God. Only one deserves our worship, the true and living God. John would have known Deuteronomy 6.4, which every Jew knows that prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. John knew Psalm 86.10, you alone are God. John would have known 1 
Chronicles 1720. O oh Lord, there is none like you. There, there is no God like you, no God besides you. John knew Isaiah 45, 21, where the Lord God is speaking himself, and he says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. So John knew those verses. He knew his own faith, but he also knew Jesus. He knew Jesus Christ. And he says with confidence and the word, the word that became flesh, was God. So Yahweh, or sometimes we say Jehovah, that's when the Bible translates God's, the word Lord, all capital letters, that's God's name. Yahweh or Jehovah, the name of God in the Old Testament. That's not the name of the Father. That's the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's God the Trinity. Yahweh, because it's used of Christ as well as of the Father. So Jesus is as much Yahweh as the Father is Yahweh. He's not less in any sense. He had no beginning from the Father. He's eternal and was always with him. So you really have to appreciate how careful John is being right here. There's two errors you can make that most people make when they're thinking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, especially the relationship between Christ and the Father. There's two errors. One is saying that Christ is not God, but he's like God. He's a little g God. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, for example. The thought there is that if the Son is a different person than the Father, he can't be God. And that was the view of a churchman way back in the third century named Arius. And it became quite a um, popular um, dispenser of this idea that Christ was less than God. And a lot of people started to embrace that. Um, we call that view Arianism because Arius was the man that pushed that idea. So he says Christ is not eternal, that he had a beginning. So he would say there was a time when Christ was not, that he did not exist, and that he was created in, by the Father. So that's one error. The other error is almost the opposite of that. It says that Christ actually is the Father. There is one God, and he wears like three masks. He's the Father sometimes, he's the Son sometimes, he's the Spirit sometimes. Sometimes, it has to be sometimes because he can't be all at the same time. So he's one person. So that view is called Sabellianism, big word, but it's just a guy named Sabellius. He also lived in the third century, and he came up with that idea as well. So... There are a few churches today that teach that. There's the Jesus-only movement, the oneness Pentecostalism. There's groups that believe that. It's also called modalism because God is appearing in three modes at different times. That's that belief. So Arianism and Sabellianism are very different, but they're both wrong. And if you look at John 1.1, 1, 1, you'll see how John, right away in the very first verse of his gospel, with this theme he wants to present that Jesus is God— he, he destroys both of those ideas long before they showed up on the scene. So when he says the word was with God, that shows that Sibelius was wrong, right? He's, you can't be, if you're the same person, you can't be with yourself, right, in that way. So he's with God. So the son had a relationship with the father, two persons. That's the Sibelian error is he's saying there's only one person and he just shows up as the father and shows up as the son. But the son has a relationship with the father. And of course, that runs all throughout the gospel that relationship. The phrase, the word was God, 
shows that Arius was wrong because Christ is God himself. There's no little g that belongs there. It's in God was the word. It's very clear. So all we are left with really is the idea that the Father and the Son are both eternally God, co-equal, co-eternal, and also the Holy Spirit, but we're not dealing with him today. Um, and that's why all Orthodox Christians embrace the doctrine of the Trinity because it's so clear from these texts. So the doctrine of the Trinity is really just taking John 1.1 seriously, and then everything else John is going to present throughout this gospel, which we're going to get into now. So let's keep moving. So we go to verse 3, and what does it say there? It says, Christ made everything. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, a Jew to write that somebody other than the, the God would create everything? See, he wouldn't do that. That's another way of saying that Christ is God. He made everything. So Christ is being identified as the creator of all things. And John would have known Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, which says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, and spreading out the earth all alone. So the Lord Jehovah is speaking there, the one God, and he says he made everything by himself and he had no helpers. But John says the word did it. Well, how could that be true? Because the word was God. That's how. He's not some lesser being. He's not created to be the architect of the universe or anything like that. He is the eternal God who made everything, the Son as well as the Father. The word does something else amazing. We already mentioned it down in verse 14. And that says the word became flesh. And there John chooses the most blunt, almost crude expression to refer to human nature. He says flesh. He became flesh. He doesn't say the word became a man or took on a body or something like that. He became flesh. Just so you know, he's talking about a real humanity, not just sort of appearing as a man or anything like that. And then verse 14, he goes on and he says, and dwelt among us. So that word dwelt means he settled among us. He pitched his tent here, if you will. That's that that word often refers to. So John wants us to recall God's dwelling with his people in the wilderness. You know, his presence filled the tabernacle. If you've heard the expression Shekinah glory, Shekinah just means dwelling place. That's all it means. So that was God's dwelling glory in the tabernacle. God was placing a bit of his glory in a human building, and now John says God is pouring his full glory into a human being, a human, human flesh, actually. That's amazing. And all of God's previous demonstrations of dwelling among his people are just superseded and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He's the great embodiment of God's presence in this world. So verse 14 goes on to describe this glory as glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Only begotten is a word that just came to mean unique. Monogenes is the word, and it just means one and only, special. One of God's, John's themes is the absolute unique relationship between the Father and the Son. I mentioned that. So finally then in verse 14 it says, um, full of grace and truth. The greatest gift and the highest truth. Now we're going to move on down to verse 18 where it says, No one has seen God at any time. I think I get that question probably as often as any other question I'm asked about the Bible when it says, No one has seen God at any time. What does that mean? Because God does appear 
at certain times to people in certain ways. He appeared to Moses. Remember, he put him in the cleft of the rock, and he says, my glory will pass by. You can't see all of me, but you can see a little bit of me. In Exodus chapter 24, and it doesn't describe the scene at all, but in Exodus 24, 9 through 11, Moses and all the elders of Israel see God. It, it was just like he's there. He's over there. And they don't explain what it looked like or what the presence was or anything, but it says that. And then God appears in human form sometimes to people or angelic form to people. The angel of the Lord is often God himself, speaks as God himself. Abraham um, welcomed God and two angels in human form into his camp and fed them dinner. Um, so when it says no man has seen God at any time, what does that mean? Well, he's saying God in his full nature can't be seen. He's infinite in his nature, and nobody can see and know the depths of God. He's, he's too much. But verse 18 still, um, it says, the only begotten God. I got to stop here real quick and just say, if you have a King James Bible, it says the only begotten Son right there. But all the early manuscripts, you know, the King James Bible was translated with only a few Greek manuscripts, and um, we've discovered so many more since then. They go farther back. And they, all the early ones say the only begotten God right there. So it hasn't even talked about his sonship yet. He's going to get there, though. So there's that. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. So he's describing Christ as the only begotten God. Now, some Greek scholars believe that these words should be separated by a comma. They kind of stand together and build on each other. And that makes sense because verse 18 is the conclusion of the prologue here. So it would read like this, only begotten, or we'll translate it one and only. Some of your Bibles will do that. The, the only begotten, the one and only, comma, God, comma, who is in the bosom of the Father, comma, and then it says, he has explained him. So there's the fullness of God's grace and glory dwelling in Christ, and he is explaining, he's manifesting who God really is. So when you see Christ, you're going to see him, which he's going to say later on. So everything a man needs to know about God can be found in the God-man, the one and only, the only begotten God. So if you want to know God, you go to the source. Look to God incarnate, who is full of grace and truth. So he's the source and the sum of all there is to know about God. And some men say God cannot be known, right? Well, the New Testament repeatedly asserts that God can be known in the face of Christ. There is truth about God you can know. There is the love of God that you can actually experience in your life. There are answers to all the big questions in Jesus Christ, in God, and what he reveals about him. And that ends the prologue of John's gospel. So verses 1 through 18. So now we're going to, if you got your sneakers there, I hope you got them laced up because we're going to start running, running through the gospel here. Flex your fingers and get ready to go. I know I'm mixing metaphors, sneakers and fingers, but um, we're going to race. That's the idea. So, we're going to jump down to verse 29. I'm just going to read little bits just to tell you how John is adding to the ideas he's already expressed. Okay? 129, John the Baptist says, Behold, this is about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, he's going to become the Savior of the world, right? Verse 34 of chapter 1, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That's the first real use of Son of God in John's Gospel. Twice he's already called Christ God, and now he's calling him Son of God, using that expression there. And knowing that he's God, we can now see that the sonship idea points to his divine nature. 
So, uh, which he shares with the Father, that unique relationship that they have as separate persons, but in one divine essence. They're, Jesus is God fully, and the Father is God fully. So those are the same two points we talked about when, when we started. Jesus is God and has a relationship with God. Two persons, one, one divine being. So, let's keep going. Verse 41. He gets a new title. Andrew, uh, Peter's brother, comes to Peter and says, We have found the Messiah. So now he's called the Messiah. Verse 45, Jesus is him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So he's the prophesied Messiah. And then in verse 49, uh, Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So there he's using the title son of God, and he's describing him as the the messianic uh, fulfillment of all those prophecies that he's the king of Israel to come. All that's in chapter 1. That's a lot. Not bad for one chapter. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to shift gears just for a moment to John's second major bookend theme, and that's the resurrection. I mentioned that, the bodily resurrection of Christ. So in chapter 2, John continues to establish Jesus' divinity through miracles, things like making water into wine and things like that. But I want to follow this incident beginning at verse 13, okay? So look at chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They're always asking him about his authority. So just stop for a minute. What, what are they looking for there? What do they want? A sign. A sign. Some proof. A divine proof. So watch what happens. So Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they don't understand. They said, verse 20, it, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? And then verse 21, John steps in to explain something that's not, that's not something Jesus verbalized because Jesus just left that sort of hanging and destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. But John says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And we don't know how Jesus physically acted at that time. He might've been going like this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We don't know, but that's what he meant. And John is telling us what he meant. So that's the first bookend, the front end of the book telling us that he's going to be raised bodily from the dead. And he's not going to get to that theme again till the end. But he's very clear. So you cannot believe the Bible and not believe that Jesus bodily, physically resurrected from the dead because he flat out says here that that's the kind of resurrection that it was. So either Jesus raised up his physical body or he was a false prophet. So chapters 1 and 2 are the first bookend together, establishing these two great themes. One, who Jesus is. He's God in human flesh, yet distinct from the Father. And two, the idea of the resurrection. It is bodily and it's real. Jesus' honor is staked on it because that's what he said he was going to do. 
So from here, the rest of the gospel alternates between miracle accounts and these verbal claims that Jesus makes, all of which reinforce the points John made in chapter 1. So, Jesus is God, yet distinct from the Father. And we can look at all of them, but so here we go. We, I'm, I'm saying we can't look at all of them, but we're going to grab some as we go. So, we're going to run some more here. Chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So, there's again, two persons, right? That's not modalism. Sibelius would be, oh, what are we going to do with that? Because two persons, the Father loves the Son. There's a relationship there. And yet... Here's Christ's divinity. He, the Father's given all things into his hand. So here's the two persons, and yet the Son is able to manage everything, the same way God the Father manages everything. Then chapter 4, verse 34. I told you I was going to run. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus had a role under the direction of the Father. He's the sent one. He's a separate person. So that one's just acknowledging again that he's another person. Chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. This is a major text. So go ahead and look for it. Math, uh, John five sixteen. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered and said, my father's working till now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you catch that? Men were not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And they saw that as work. That's how the Jews actually identified um, healing. They, they said, you can bring people up to, you can work enough to keep their life, but you can't make them better. That's actually the rule that they had. So you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath by making people better. That was their rule. That wasn't God's rule. And um, uh, so they're, they're confronting him with that rabbinical rule. Uh, this, you're working. And his answer is not the same answer he gives in other times in different places. His answer is God works on the Sabbath. My father's working. He has to run the universe, you know. So the son works too. That's... That's his answer. He could have said, don't you think God would allow healing on the Sabbath? I mean, you guys made that rule, but that's not really the right rule. And he did at other times argue that the law does permit you to rescue people. In fact, if an animal falls into a pit, a domestic animal, it's okay on the Sabbath to work and pull it out. He, Jesus used that example. He could have given him an argument like that. He did it at other times. But here he's going right for the throat. He's saying, He's distinguishing himself from all other human beings. He's saying the Father's working, so the Son is working. So he's claiming a prerogative that belongs only to God, that God works on the Sabbath. And they understood him, because you can see in verse 18, they knew he was making himself equal with God. They knew that. So he could have said, no, no, you don't understand. But instead of that, he makes it even more clear about who he is. Look at verse 20, chapter 5. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that, here's the thing, 
So that, why? Here's the reason. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That is shocking. When he says all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father, that phrase even as is a term of direct equal comparison. He's saying Christ should be honored, the Lord Jesus should be honored with the same reverence that is given to God. And no human being would ever say that legitimately. So Jesus says the Son should be given equal honor with the Father. It's absolutely an incredible statement. Okay, let's keep running. Chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Sort of the same idea there. He's the source of life. That's a God quality. Chapter 6, verse 39, um, he's called the Holy One of God. Chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then you get to the end of chapter 8, verse 58, and Jesus is in one of these dialogue things. And when his opponents, Jesus talks like he knows Abraham, and his opponents say, well, you're not even 50 years old. I mean, what are you talking about? And then Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Abraham lived like almost 2,000 years before Jesus. 2,000 years before Abraham was born. He doesn't even say I was. He says, I am. Now, you know, when Moses asked God what his name was, what did God say? I am. I am that I am. I have to say it like that because in the Ten Commandments movie, Charlton Heston does the voice of God, and that's, what he, that's how he says it. I am that I am. But when the Jews translated the Bible into Greek, and this is before Jesus' time, they used two Greek words, ego, eimi, which means I am. That's what God said to Moses, and those are exactly the words Jesus says right here. Before Abraham was born, ego, eimi, I am. I am, I am. Why do you say I am when you're talking about the past? Because he's eternal. He's not bound by time. He's truly God. And they knew what he was saying because they decided to stone him to death right on the spot for blasphemy because he was claiming to be God again. It was very clear. Okay, we're going to keep running. Chapter 12, verse 37 through 41. I'm just going to mention this, but John actually says here that when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, saw God seated on his throne... He was seeing Jesus. That's an amazing thing. You can look that up for yourself. Just read through that carefully. John chapter 12, verse 44 and 45, Jesus says, He who beholds me beholds the one who sent me, which is very much like what he's going to say later. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you behold me, you've, you behold the one who sent me. No prophet would ever say that or anything like that. N not even an angel or a high angel or some lesser being. But Jesus does say it. Chapter 14, verse 1. Here's another sort of equivalence. Believe in God, believe also in me. You never hear a prophet say something like that. Verse 6 of chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there again you have two persons, but you also have Christ as the very source of of salvation. He's, he is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. 
Verse 9 of chapter 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. We mentioned that already. If you want to see God, look at the Son. Because if you look at the Son, you're going to see the Father. Verse 23 of chapter 14, Both the Father and the Son are said to abide with and dwell in the believer, both the Father and the Son, two persons. Chapter 14, verse 28, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Again, two persons. Oh, but wait, this is where the Arians jump up out of the room and ignore everything we've just said and say, but there, there it is. He's great. The Father's greater than the Son. See, he is different. He's above him. He's over him. He's, he's, Jesus must be a created being. That's their big text. That's the one they always go to. Well, yeah, he said all that stuff about honoring him, even as one honors the Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But right here, he says, the Father is greater. So, in our Bible, we're going to put a little G when it says, and the Word was God. He's a little God. He's not really God. That's what the Arians would say. Is that, a, is that right? Are they right about that? No, not really. You know, greater can have different meanings. You can be greater than someone in essence, like a greater being, or you could also be greater than someone in function, right? Or both. But it could be one or the other, and, and you've got to grab from the full context what the essence of that is um, for here, what the actual idea is here. Is it essence or function? I mean, Tarzan was greater than Cheetah, his chimpanzee companion. In essence, he's a greater being. He's a different being. He's far above him. He's got all the qualities that human beings have. And he swings through vines, too. And, well, Cheetah did that even better, I think. But, but Tarzan can think. He's a human being. He's rational. He's moral. He's a creator. He's all of these wonderful things that human beings are. But function is a sergeant saying, my captain tells me what to do, and that's what I do in the army. But is a captain a greater being or a, in his essence a superior being? He might be a much worse human being in his behavior, but he has the authority to sin. So that's a functional greater than. The captain is greater than the sergeant. The general is greater than the captain. So what's Jesus talking about here? I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, the answer is um, it's not essence. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's an essence verse, but this verse is about function. Now, remember we talked about last week the three rules of interpretation, context, context, and context. So we have to bring that to play right here. And the context is Jesus returning to the Father that sent him. And in the very same discourse, you know, all these chapters, um, chapter 13 all the way up to here, are um, all about... Jesus talking to his men at the Last Supper. Well, if you just back up to chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. That's function. So a slave is equally human with their master. There's not an essence difference. There's a functional order there. One is the sender. Go and get my groceries and bring them back. And one is the scent. I will go get your groceries and bring them back. In that sense, the master is greater. And that's how Jesus is talking about greater, even in this context, that the father is greater than the son because he sent him, and the son is the one who is sent. So as the son became flesh and became a man and paid the penalty for our sins, the father did not do that. The son endured all of this on earth, and then he's going back to the father who sent him. So that's the whole idea. I hope that's clear. 
Let's jump to chapter 17 and the great uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus for his disciples. I'm just going to dash through this part, but in verses 3 through 5, it, uh, Jesus says, Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. And verse 5 is just amazing. I mean, amazing words. He says, Father, he, this is a prayer. He's praying to the Father, two persons. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. They shared glory. How can that be? How can he share, how can a man share glory with the God? Because this was before he was a man. This is in eternity. They shared glory. And you know, God said something in Isaiah chapter 48, 42, I mean verse 8, Isaiah 42, 8. God says he doesn't share his glory with anyone. Because he's God. But the Son did share his glory with the Father because he's God. He's equally God. That's the whole point there. So the Son is eternally God with the Father. So it's a shared glory. Okay, are you getting tired yet? We're almost home. Now we come to the other bookend. We've run through the book, and now we're at the other bookend on the other side. We're going to go to chapter 20. And this is, from a, a literary standpoint, standpoint the, that this is the last chapter of John's gospel. Chapter 21 is sort of an appendix, it's an add-on, but the gospel actually ends, I'm talking about in terms of structure, with chapter 20. So we're just going to look at that. So remember John's two points, how did we start? Jesus is God, yet the Son is distinct, a distinct person from the Father, that's one point, and Jesus resurrected bodily from the grave. That's the other point. So that's how the book started. He's pushed all the way through explaining more and more about Jesus and the Father's relationship. And now we're going to talk about those two things again. So we're going to start with the resurrection, chapter 20, verse 5. So John and, John and Peter are running to the tomb of Jesus. And John just happens to be a little faster. So it says, Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So John's kind of like, he gets there first, but he's kind of peeking and Oh, look, there's the wrappings there. And he's not going to go in. And Peter just goes, he goes right past him because he just wants to see Jesus, right? So Peter came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and placed by itself. A lot of detail there. So you know, this is a real, real eyewitness uh, account here. So the other disciple who had first come, that's John, to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the wrappings were still there. Jesus rose bodily. He left the grave clothes there. So John is starting his case now for the bodily resurrection. He's really going to push that now. Chapter 20, verse 17, you know, Jesus meets Mary in the garden outside there, and Jesus says to her, um, verse 17, I ascend to my father and your father, and my God, and your God. That's the two persons theme. Christ is not the same as the Father. He's as a man serving the Father. The Father is his God as a human being, and he's responding to him in that way. Two persons. And then in verse 19, John presents proof of the physical resurrection that Jesus proclaimed way back in chapter 2 when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So here's what he says here. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Then verse 20. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. That's where the major wounds were. 
The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So he's physically there, still bearing the marks of the wounds he was given at the cross. Now, in verses 24 through 28, this is going to be the last statement about Jesus in the gospel. So this is the end of the, the bookend. I mean, this, we've started, went all the way through, and this is the last statement John wants to make about Jesus. Who is Jesus? So Thomas was waiting in line at Costco for toilet paper when the other disciples were there and, and saw Jesus. He wasn't there that time. He was out getting supplies or something. I don't know if he was at Costco. He could have been at Sam's Club. But um, he said to them, he says, I need to touch him. I have to physically handle him to believe what you guys are saying. It can't be true that he's risen from the dead. So verse 26, it says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. That's how the gospel ends. I mean, that's the main end, really. That's the last thing John wants you to hear. So the first thing he wanted you to hear was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at the end, he wants you to hear from the lips of a human being, who's seen the resurrected Christ, these words, my Lord and my God. That's how he constructed the gospel. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And Jesus affirms Thomas' confession of faith. He says, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So the gospel begins, the word was with God, the word was God. It ends with my Lord and my God. And the only thing left for John is to tell us why he wrote the gospel. And his purpose, and that's in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe it? Have you said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, with faith? Because that's what he's looking for. That's why he's written this. John's book is not just an amazing story. It's not a record of John's remarkable friend that he spent years with. It's a proclamation of life to everyone who believes in Jesus as the Lord and as God. Life in Jesus. That's the gospel. It's good news. It's good news for me. I believe it. And he wants you to believe it too. That's why John wrote. Let's pray. Lord, we know and understand that you would have us believe on the Lord Jesus, the creator of all things and the savior of the world, the man you sent to us. Father, we honor the son today, even as we honor you. We stand with him when the world mocks him. We obey him as we would obey you. We delight in him as our creator as we delight in you. We see your glory and compassion and holiness in him. And we ask you to glorify the Son in us, in our love for him and in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for being with us. We'll do this again next week. God bless you.